One verse uh, probably best summarizes uh, part one of our series that we're introducing today, and that is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. And I know it's one verse, but would you stand with me just to honor God's word together? First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Lord, we want to know the power of your cross. We want to bask in its foolishness, and we want to be known as people who embody the crucified Lord. So help us by your grace, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, what do you get when you combine Las Vegas, Vancouver, and Hong Kong all wrapped into one? All those things are true. For our purposes this morning, you get the city of Corinth. And that's part of why 1 Corinthians is uh, such a, a wild book in a lot of ways. It's full of so many different issues. It's got sex and scandal, lawsuits, arguments, infighting, philosophy, human wisdom, paganism, and much more. And in the middle of all that is what Paul calls his foolish message of the cross. So welcome to 1 Corinthians and specifically uh, our series part one, which we're entitling The Message of the Cross and the Wisdom of the World. Today's message is uh, an introduction to the whole book of 1 Corinthians so that we can understand the, the situation and story behind what caused Paul to write this letter. And you might say, why do we need a whole message just to introduce a book of the Bible? Can't we just, you know, jump right in? But that would do a great disservice to Paul, and more importantly, to the Word of God. God's Word deals with real situations in history. You know, the Bible didn't just fall out of the sky from heaven. No, in God's uh, wisdom, which is an important word and concept in this book, as we'll see, God inspired the word through us, through the mess of real-life situations, which is where our theology actually gets worked out the best, not in kind of a, a tower, ivory tower of isolation. 1 Corinthians is what we call an occasional letter, just meaning that it's written in response to a specific situation. So Paul's not sitting in Ephesus being like, hmm, got some free time on my hands. What should I write about? Who should I write it to? No, as we'll see, there's an urgency to Paul's letter. He felt like he had to write this because of what was happening in the city of Corinth. And what was happening? Well, let's get into that story a little bit. And I hope this is fascinating for you to enter into the story behind the letter. And it's important because if we don't know some of the story, then 1 Corinthians just becomes this disembodied theological treatise where we kind of pull verses out of thin air. And that's not uh, the proper way 
to read the Scriptures. And if we want to live by this book, we should know as much about it as possible and how it came to be. Amen? So the author is Paul. Uh, fortunately for us, there's really no debate about that, so we don't have to spend a lot of time about that. Not our Paul, uh, but the Apostle Paul. The date is the mid-50s, not 1950s, uh, as in like the year 55, around there is when it was written. And the location is in Ephesus. Paul tells us uh, clearly in 1 Corinthians 16, 18, that he's writing from Ephesus, which is across the water. In case you're not familiar with the Apostle Paul, he's uh, considered the second most important person really in the history of Christianity after Jesus. Uh, Paul has an encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. You can read about it in the book of Acts. And he catches fire for the gospel. And, and he was one of God's chosen instruments for then spreading the good news. And Paul traveled around on missionary journeys to uh, share the message in churches. And you can read about it in Acts. But one of the places he traveled to was the city of Corinth. And in fact, Paul stayed in Corinth, Acts 18 tells us, for a year and a half. And you can read some of that story again in Acts 18. And, and that's what caused him to then later write this letter to uh, our recipients, which is the church in Corinth. And so some things to know about Corinth, and I'll go over these, but it's a, a city of religion and vice. It's cosmopolitan, diverse, pluralistic, religiously. There's lots of new wealth, and it's mostly uh, Greco-Roman and Gentile, meaning non-Jew. As mentioned, uh, Corinth, you know, it was, it was a happening, if not kind of weird and wild place. A decent way to think of it, at least in terms of, of culture and the kinds of maybe people it attracted, is to picture yourself saying, you know, I'm going to start a church, and I'm going to go down to the main strip on Las Vegas, and I'm just going to plan it right there and, you know, see what happens, see who comes, where people come from all over the world to see and do who knows what. Unlike, you know, Jerusalem or, or Rome, uh, Corinth was actually a relatively new city in the scope of history at the time, kind of like Las Vegas. Uh, it lied dormant until uh, Julius Caesar kind of uh, re-founded it in 46 BC. So like a lot of new cities, Corinth had you know, new wealth, new religions, new fashions, new ideas, a lot of new. And it was uh, a port city, so it's kind of like Vancouver or Hong Kong. Uh, so even like today, port cities tend to be less conservative than inland cities because all kinds of cultures kind of merge and settle there as it's the entry place. And so Corinth becomes this hub for all these cultures uh, to kind of settle and intersect and ideas and, and trade and, and, and money and, and even diseases are exchanged in Corinth. And so due to its strategic location, Corinth becomes kind of the political and, and commercial hub of Greece and became the largest city in Roman Greece by the time of Paul. And it had primarily what we would call a, a Greco-Roman culture and philosophy. And the population was, was mostly Gentiles, meaning non-Jews. And there were temples around the city to <clears throat> Greek gods, uh, including uh, the, the goddess Aphrodite, which some say at one time that temple served as many as 1,000 
pagan uh, priestess or prostitutes, and, and that may be an exaggeration uh, from history, but the point is, you know, sexual promiscuity was a big deal, and it's a big deal in this letter that Paul addresses. So it's been called a city of, of religion and vice, and was often synonymous with immorality and greed. So that's Corinth. But why does Paul write this letter? Well, let's talk about the occasion and the purpose. In a nutshell, the church in Corinth, it was a mess. The situation is not good. There's, there's bad blood between Paul and some of the people there. Uh, they have a history together. There's, there's a few bad eggs who have kind of uh, infiltrated the church and infected the whole church. Uh, so this is not like the last New Testament letter we looked at together, which was the book of Philippians, where Paul's like, I love you guys. You guys are the greatest. You're awesome. I miss you so much. No, this letter is like, what in the world are you doing? It is essentially a letter of correction or warning. So chapter 4, verse 14, Paul lays this out. He says, I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Gordon Fee, a great New Testament theologian, he says that uh, the letter attempts to kind of surgically remove non-Christian attitudes and behaviors in the church without killing the patient. That's kind of the, the tightrope walk or dance Paul is trying to do here. He's trying to correct them without crushing them. As we said, this letter didn't just fall out of the sky. Right? It has a context and a history, and, and Paul actually makes at least three visits to Corinth, and there's actually four letters that he writes to Corinth. We only have two of them, but there's four. So there's the previous letter uh, that he mentions here in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10. So he's already written in the letter, we just don't have it. And then there's 1 Corinthians, the letter we're actually looking at. In 2 Corinthians, he mentions a severe letter and the painful visit that takes place in between. And then, of course, he writes 2 Corinthians. So there's already been a back-and-forth exchange between Paul and Corinth before this book we're reading now was written. And the book can roughly be divided into kind of two parts. Uh, chapters 1 through 6 is all about what they did not write to Paul about, the things he's trying to address that he's heard from reports he's received from others. So he'll, he'll talk about in the book how he's received from Chloe's household these reports of what's going on in the church of Corinth, and he mentions them in the verses uh, that are up there. And then in the second half of the book, chapters 7 through 16, this is all about what they did write to Paul about. So he's actually responding to that letter that we no longer have, but we can kind of piece it together based on what he says. So uh, in chapter 7, verse 1, he says, uh, you know, now about the things you wrote to me about. And so we know from this point on in the letter, he's addressing their concerns. And then five times later, he'll say, you know, now about, now about, now about. And that's just him referring to things they've already written to him about. So some of the issues that come up in this book is, you know, there's a lot of factions and divisions. There's immorality. So there's, there's moral laxness. There's sexual immorality. There's greed. Uh, and there's a lot of spiritual immaturity. That's really the root of a lot of 
these issues that Paul addresses. There's jealousy and envy and abuse of power or spiritual gifts. There's marital problems, misunderstanding of what it means to be uh, spiritual or wise. And so that brings us to the important themes in the book. So because of the occasional nature of the letter and Paul answering a previous letter that they sent, 1 Corinthians has been called, you know, really the, the most difficult letter to summarize because Paul addresses at least 11 different themes in this book. And we'll get to talk about a lot of them, right? About divisions and holy living and Christian freedom and worship and wisdom and the cross and resurrection and the Lord's Supper and all kinds of different issues. But there's some prominent themes that I want to introduce uh, from the beginning that we'll try to focus on a little bit in our study, and this is kind of my, my own thematic summary here. But number one is about Paul the pastor. One scholar calls Corinthians the most intensely practical of all of Paul's letters because it's written to address the immediate concerns of the Christians there. And so we really get insight into to Paul the pastor Right, the pastoral heart of Paul, which I would argue you see in every letter and, and is actually a very overlooked part of Paul's life, that he is first and foremost a pastor. And his theology and his doctrine that he's often known for is worked out of his pastoral heart and ministry. So except for chapter 15, which is on the, the resurrection body, which we'll get to in 2025, all the issues in the letter are behavioral rather than doctrinal or theological. So this is a pastoral book. It's not a theological lecture, which is why this book has such a big emphasis on right living over right thinking. Now, no one is saying our theology doesn't matter. It does. And in fact, it's causing a lot of the wrong behavior for sure. Theology and practice, they're, they're always intersected. They go together. But the emphasis in 1 Corinthians is no doubt on the importance of living right. What we'll see is the Corinthians had this idea that we can be Christians and still live however we want, according to the flesh. And Paul says, uh-uh, you can't live in contrary to the life in the Spirit and the message of the cross and be a follower of Christ and His cross. So if, if Romans and Galatians communicate that we are not saved by the law but by grace, which they do, this letter communicates that as such... We are now under chapter 9, verse 21, the law of Christ and bound by the law of Christ. That is, the outflow that we understand the gospel of grace is that we now live in accordance with that message of grace. How we live matters and is the evidence of what we believe. You know, our mind and our heart and our hands, they are all interconnected parts of our faith. And the evidence our hearts and mind are fully devoted to Christ is that so are our hands, right? Meaning our actions. They're all connected. They should be in 
communion with one another. So I don't see anywhere in the Bible where it says that when we stand before God one day, He's going to give us a Bible quiz. And if we pass that test, He'll say, well said, accurate and knowledgeable Christian thinker, welcome into the kingdom of heaven. Can't find that in the Bible. What you will find is that one day God will assess our works, what we do. And what the Bible does say is that he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done is more important than well said. And that's what Paul's trying to get at in the book of 1 Corinthians. Then the last theme that summarizes part of the message of 1 Corinthians is Corinth versus the cross. Or we could say that the culture of Corinth versus the culture of the cross. The wisdom of Corinth versus the wisdom of the cross. Corinthian culture versus Christ crucified. I really had too many ideas for this point. But here's the basic gist of what I'm trying to say and what Paul is saying. The culture of Corinth was more influential in the church than the culture of the cross. There was more Corinth in them than the cross. The Corinthians were trying to take the values of the Greco-Roman culture around them and, and trying to Christianize them, and it was leading to a worldly church. The Corinthians were modifying the gospel to fit their culture, and really their desires. Essentially, they wanted the best of both worlds. And Paul says, you can't have it both ways. Either Jesus is Lord or your culture is Lord. Follow Corinth or follow the cross. And the Corinthian culture, as we'll see, was, was all about greatness and status and wisdom and wealth and superiority and, and making it big. And Paul says, you want to know God's definition of greatness and wisdom? Look at the cross. The cross is what God's wisdom and greatness looks like. And what Christians, especially Christian leaders, should model their lives on. And the truth is, just like many Christians and leaders today, the Corinthians didn't like that answer because the life of the cross was not central to their faith. They weren't comfortable with the Jesus who goes to the cross, who washes feet. They wanted greatness. They wanted someone wise and respectable that they could, you know, brag about. So they essentially come up with their own version of Christianity and wisdom, one that supports their ideas and lifestyle. And so this letter addresses those problems. And the truth is, and what will be important every week for us, is that Corinth is not much different than the church and culture today. Right? We are often more influenced 
by the culture around us than the cross. We often prefer the wisdom of the world to the wisdom of the cross. And we do this in a number of ways, you know, whether you mix patriotism and nationalism with Christianity to create an idolatrous faith, or pick and choose which parts of Christianity you like or that benefit your life the most, but ignore biblical teachings about morality or materialism or money because they don't really fit the culture. They don't allow me to, to fit in and live the way I want. Or we're more influenced by social media and the, the tone and the rhetoric there than we are the cross. You know, we learn to yell at anyone who thinks different than us. We create enemies and angry messages instead of doing what Jesus tells us to do, which is to love our enemies, to bless those who curse us. Perhaps the biggest way we're influenced by our culture is just our individualism and our consumer mentality. That as we perhaps even unconsciously treat God and Christianity and the church as a consumer, you know, asking, how can God meet my needs? Rather than being crucified with Christ and becoming a low co-laborer in community in Christ's church, asking, how can I serve the needs of the kingdom and my sisters and brothers? For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, when the cross no longer becomes central to our faith, and we start to prefer the wisdom of the world to the wisdom of God as displayed in the cross, then the cross becomes foolishness to us. It no longer makes sense to those who are perishing. But to those who understand God's wisdom and are being saved, the cross is everything, and especially the power of God. So how do we keep the cross central to our lives? That will be one of the challenges of this book to the way we live our lives, so that the cross forms and shapes us more than the culture around us. Well, at least one way we do that in the wisdom of God is through this table, through communion, where Jesus regularly reminds us, this is how I want to be remembered. This is what greatness looks like. It's my broken body. It's my poured out blood. This is who I am. Remember me this way.